Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Moroni 1 through 6. This is kind of the second ending, isn't it, Bryce? Yeah. He First he ended when he thought he was going to end, and then he, he lives much longer. Chapter 1, he clearly says, I did not expect to have this amount of time to write. I'm hiding from the Lamanites. I love the line, they put to death every Nephite that will not deny the Christ. And I love this next line, and I, Moroni, will not deny the Christ. Meaning if they find me, I know they're going to kill me, but they haven't found me yet. And so I continue to write, which is interesting because now what does he put in? I wonder if he wrote chapter one before he wrote the book of Ether. And I know Mike's going to talk about that in a bit. I wonder if he says, well, let's throw in the book of Ether. And then after the book of Ether, his question is, what is missing? What does the book not yet have? Looking back over the whole history of the Book of Mormon, what are some of the small little cracks in the wall that I can fill? And so chapters two through six seem to focus on the role of the church. Because if you think about the Book of Mormon, nowhere in the Book of Mormon do we ever get to look into the church. We never walk into the chapel and see what church is like, especially post-Law of Moses. So when Jesus fulfills the Law of Moses and institutes a whole new system with sacrament and all of that, what does sacrament meeting look like? What does church services look like? And so Moroni must have looked back and said, you know what, that's nowhere in the text. And so he begins to throw in the function of the church. Now, Latter-day Saints will read these chapters and say, well, of course, but that's not so common knowledge among Christianity. For example, chapter 2, chapter 3, laying on of hands. Now, that's something that Latter-day Saints know. Well, authority is passed on by the laying on of hands. We clearly know that, and yet here we see Moroni pointing out that they received authority by the laying on of hands. The whole point of the apostasy is that there was a break in that chain, and you cannot read the scriptures and all of a sudden have authority. You can't go to school and all of a sudden have authority from God. But that's kind of how it becomes, isn't it? Because that's kind they, of the, they part from Catholicism. Yeah. Just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm educated. I went to college. I don't mean to point the finger at anyone. But the Bible, if you read it, and then this end of the Book of Mormon makes it very clear that the passage of authority from one to another is by the laying on of hands. And see, hence we our see that's fifth, lost. Yeah, and hence our fifth article of faith. That was a big deal when Joseph Smith made that deal, is we believe that authority is passed on by the laying on of hands. Yeah. And hence we see an unbroken chain from Joseph to holders of the priesthood today. Every, you know, every one of them can hold up a piece of paper that says, here is my unbroken chain with hands being laid on head. So that's kind of cool to see. Uh, we see baptism, we see sacrament. Um, there really wasn't a whole lot of, we saw Jesus instituting the sacrament, and then there's not a whole lot of how-tos. How do you hold this? What are the, what, what's the doctrine for holding the sacrament? So it's really nice to see that the Nephites did this, that they met. What I would like to focus on, and some of the, some of the things that are significant for Latter-day Saints, a lot of this is, 
Well, of course we meet once a week to partake of bread and water. Of course there's baptism, and of course there's sacrament, and of course the priests and teachers are ordained by the laying on of hands. That's second nature to us. But one of the concepts that President Nelson is really helping us understand is the difference between authority and power. And I find it fascinating in chapter 2, Moroni chapter 2, that Moroni says, look, one of the things that I feel like I need to include is what Jesus said when he ordained the 12 way back in 3 Nephi. Now, that's a fascinating addition that Moroni would say, I think you need to know the words that he uttered when he ordained the 12 and gave them the authority to bestow the Holy Ghost upon people. Because the very act of him laying his hands upon them gave them authority. But in the prayer, Jesus told them what they would need to do to receive power. Those two words are not the same. Now, let me take you back to the April General Conference, 2018. This is the very first General Conference where Russell, this is the solemn assembly for Russell Nelson. He is being set apart and ordained and sustained as the president of the church. He doesn't speak during the Saturday morning session. He doesn't really give a talk. He mentions a few things he welcomes, and then there's some changes that he introduces. But his first real talk is in the priesthood session Saturday night. Now, this is the first time that the world gets to hear from our newly sustained prophet. And he does, oh, he, he, he pays tribute to President Monson. He does a beautiful job, you know, paying tribute to his predecessor and how much we love President Monson. And then as soon as he's done talking about his love for President Monson, now the mantle is on his shoulders and the very first thing out of his mouth to the church. I know it's through a priesthood meaning, but he's speaking as the prophet. He says, now may I voice a concern. This is the first major talk as prophet. And he says, can I, can I voice a concern? I have a concern. It is this. Too many of our brothers and sisters do not fully understand the concept of priesthood power and authority. He brings up those same two words. Too many of our brothers and sisters do not fully understand the difference between power and authority and the full concept of power and authority. He goes on to say, I fear that too many of our brothers and sisters do not grasp the privileges that could be theirs. Some, for some of our brethren, for example, act like they do not understand what the priesthood is and what it enables them to do. So here we have our modern prophet, very first time addressing the church as a whole, in a significant talk, and he says, I have a concern that we as a church do not understand fully the concept of priesthood power and priesthood authority. And then Moroni, in chapter 2, quotes Jesus as saying, let me tell you how to have 
power. So the very fact that Jesus is laying his hands upon them means he is giving them authority. Authority comes when you have been given permission from a key holder to do something. People who believe that women don't exercise their priesthood don't understand their priesthood. Because every single woman who performs a calling in this church under the direction of a key holder is exercising priesthood authority. Every sister missionary is exercising priesthood authority. Every primary teacher, every young women's leader, everyone that is called and set apart under the direction of a key holder and given permission to perform some task in the church has priesthood authority. And so President Nelson says, we're not claiming those privileges. When you have been called and set apart, you are exercising the priesthood. And you have every right to expect heaven's help because you have that authority. You are an authorized representative. And you should speak with confidence, knowing that God has authorized you to do whatever it is, even if it's just give a talk in church or preach the gospel or be a teacher, or a leader, you are exercising authority. Authority we get when you get the assignment. But listen very carefully to what Jesus said to the twelve, according to Moroni 2.2. He called them by name, saying, Ye shall call upon the Father in my name in mighty prayer. And after ye have done this, ye shall have power. Authority he was giving them at that moment when he laid his hands upon them. But whether or not they have power is up to them. And I really think this is what President Nelson is saying. Authority we exercise simply by fulfilling our responsibilities in the church. But whether or not you have power is a different matter. I would turn everyone's attention to Doctrine and Covenants section 121. This is Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. Doctrine and Covenants 121, in Liberty Jail, the prophet wrote, Many are called, but few are chosen. I think that's a fancy way of saying many have authority in this church, but not many have power. There are many missionaries who go out there and are authorized, but they don't have power. There are many sacrament talks. And if you give a talk under the authority of a priesthood holder who's assigned you to speak, you have authority, but many are called and few are chosen. I think it's Joseph's way of saying, many with authority lack power. And I think we can all attest to that, right? Everyone who gives a talk in sacrament meeting under authority is exercising priesthood authority, but not all sacrament speakers speak with power. Speaking with power is if it's convincing, if it's persuading. And I think if I'm using, and he's going to go into this, right, where he says if you're using coercion or force, you may have the authority, but you're not persuading. Yeah, you don't have any power. So let's go to that verse 34, many are called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of this world, and they aspire to the honors of man that they do not learn this one lesson. And it seems to me that this is what President Nelson is saying, that this church has not yet fully learned this lesson. 
So those of you listening, I would invite you to learn this lesson. And the lesson is this, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. If I could say that a little differently, I think it means when you exercise authority, you can have power. The rights of the priesthood, because the priesthood is on earth, we can access power of heaven. But here's the lesson. The powers of heaven are not controlled by office or even by authority. They are controlled and handled upon principles of righteousness. It is, you don't, you don't have to hold an office to have power in the priesthood. And it's not necessarily your authority that gives you power in the priesthood. What gives you power in the priesthood is your righteousness. And I've often wondered when elders are called to give a blessing to a baby. They are authorized to give that blessing. But I wonder if the power that heals the child is the mom's. I wonder if it comes from mom. We should exercise priesthood blessings. We should seek priesthood blessings. But whether or not you have power comes from your own connection to heaven, your own righteousness. You cannot assume to have power if you are not obeying the principles of righteousness that the Lord has set out. But if you are, if you are living the gospel, you have more power than you realize you have. You have the power of God to convince and to protect and to bless. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that we should forego priesthood blessings. When hands are laid upon our heads and we perform the ordinance of a blessing, that is a tremendous thing. But the lesson we need to learn in this church is that power comes from righteousness. So going back to Moroni chapter 2, notice what he's saying. I am authorizing you to give the gift of the Holy Ghost. The laying on of hands, me laying my hands on you is authorizing you. But whether or not you have power depends on what you do from here on out. So he says, call upon the Father in mighty prayer. And if you do that, you'll have power. There's, there's some wonder, wonderful places in the scriptures where we see how to unlock that power. It's a significant thing when a member of the church exercises power. Turn with me to section 11 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Hiram Smith wants to be a powerful missionary. So the Lord says in verse 21, Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then shall your tongue be loosed. And then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. When your life is worthy of his spirit, when you have filled your life with the Holy Ghost because of your righteousness, 
and you are a student of the scriptures and the word of God, and you attend the temple, and you do the things that bring the word of God into your life, according to the scriptures, you will have power unto the convincing of men, even if those are your children. You can control the powers of heaven, but it requires mighty prayer. It requires filling your life with the Holy Ghost. The things that we've been taught from our youth, if you live the gospel to the best of your ability, if you seek the Spirit, if you pray, if you seek out and reach towards the rod of iron— You will have power, power when you give a talk in church, power when you pray, power when you speak to your children, power when you fulfill your calling. There is an added measure of power that comes through our righteousness. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to say to the disciples. And that's why Moroni threw this chapter in, is authority you now have, whether or not you have power will depend on how you now live your life. And that's a significant invitation to all of us. A simple way to teach this to a teenager is ask your teenager this question. Tell me about your gym teacher. And the first thing they'll say is, man, he or she is so fit, or man, they're so out of shape. I had this gym teacher in high school, and she was just like a little He-Man doll. She was ripped, right? And everyone was like, I want to run you know, fast like teacher so-and-so. And we've all had the gym teacher that sits behind the desk and hasn't picked up weights in 20 years. And you you lose your power influence, right? Or the math teacher. I love math because of a very, very powerful math teacher who paid that same price of math like Jesus is inviting that we pay spiritually. And he had power, and he convinced, and he, we fell in love with math. Imagine doing that with your children when you prayed or when you read the Scriptures or talked to them about the Scriptures. You can have that same convincing power because your life is your example. And that's where we gain our power. I really liked one of the first podcasts we did where we talked about how to read your scriptures. And one of the things you said was essentially, when you pick up the scriptures and you start reading it, ask yourself, okay, what is the problem it's addressing, the the text? And then what's the Lord's solution? And then go and apply it. So if you're a teacher, that's a good pattern. In other words, We have to answer the so what question. And if we can't answer that question, then we got to go back and reread it and ask ourselves, okay, why is this in here? So what? And then how is it relevant? And I think if we can connect relevance to the scriptures, then we'll say, oh, I get it now. And if we can live that relevance, if they not only hear our words, but if they see in our lives an acceptance, a dedication, that those principles live in our hearts— There's a powerful teacher, someone who sees relevance and application, is living and striving. I really think that's what President Nelson was talking about, is we don't live up to our privileges, that we can have much more power in our callings if we would just yearn for it and seek for it, the things that bring power into our lives. I think another thing that they're talking about too is this idea that priest of power is not a gender. Priest of power is God's power. And so when we use God's power, now offices are to the men, men hold offices and keys, but priest of power is God's power and it's it's to all of his children. 
if if they've had hands laid on their heads. And authority so is not you Same know thing. you don't yeah. necessarily need to be Same of a thing. specific gender. If if you've received an assignment. And if you think about how priesthood is exercised in this church, very little of it is exercised by virtue of office or by keys. The vast majority of priesthood is exercised by authority. I am fulfilling an assignment, and you don't have to be male. You just have to receive an authorized assignment then go do and it. fulfill it. And then whether or not you have power is up to you, not who called you or not the calling that you have. That's good. So that's chapter two. I think that's significant. I like that. Chapter three, again, it's this idea that we pass the priesthood on by the laying on of hands, that elders, priests, teachers, whatever the office was, it happened by the laying on of hands. And I just think that was very significant to establish. And then in chapters four and five, we have the sacrament prayers which you won't find anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. We knew they performed the sacrament, but nowhere does it say, here's what we said. And just, I know we've talked sacrament in the past, and this isn't necessarily the time or place to have a long sacrament discussion, but it just impresses me so much that between these two chapters, four and five, you find the concept of remembering him repeated four times. Now, what I love is in the prayer on the bread, we partake of, in remembrance of, and then promise to do three things. So we partake of the bread in remembrance of Jesus and witness three things, one of which is to remember. The other two are to take upon us the name of Christ and keep his commandments. So when we partake of the bread, we promise three things. His, take upon us his name, remember him, and then keep his commandments. Now, in the prayer on the water, if you've never noticed this, let me draw your attention. That we drink in remembrance like we did the bread. We drink in remembrance. But this time we only witness one thing. The bread has three, the water has one. And the one that's repeated isn't take upon us his name. That isn't repeated. It's not keep his commandments. The one and only thing we witness when we partake of the sacrament and we drink that cup of water is to always remember him. It's fascinating that Three covenants under the bread, and if we're going to copy, if we're going to move one of them into the water, which one do we repeat? And the one we repeat is to remember. We promise we will remember. Many years ago, Elder Lund shared a story about a guy who was rock climbing, and this guy basically is on belay, and he's climbing a rock, and he says, that there was an accident and he fell and the guy who was belaying him saved his life. And it's a pretty cool story. He says this, he says, when a climber gets into a safe position, they fasten the rope in a fixed position. They call to their companion, you're on belay, meaning I've got you. The director of the climbing school, Alan, described his experience with belaying. He says, belaying has brought him his best and worst moments in climbing. Once he fell from a high precipice, yanking out three mechanical supports, 
and pulling his belayer off a ledge. He was stopped, his life was saved, upside down 10 feet from the ground when his spread-eagled belayer arrested the fall with the strength of his outstretched arms. And then Ellen says, Don saved my life. And he recalls this story, how his belayer literally saved him from certain death. And he said, how do you respond to a guy like that that saves your life? Do you give him a used climbing rope for a Christmas present? No. You remember him. You always remember him. And that story has been shared by Elder Lund. And he said, I was reading this in a, in a rock climbing magazine. And he says, right when I read that, I thought of Christ. And obviously, right? Because that's who he is. He thinks of Christ. Sometimes when I read a book or watch a movie or something, I'll think, oh my goodness, that reminds me of this circumstance in the Gospels. And I think that's what it means to always remember him. We can never pay back Jesus. And he has, he's saved our life. And the thing that he wants us to do is to remember him. And so it's a beautiful parable about that idea of just remembering who he is. And Bryce, I love the promise in there where he says, if we remember him, then we'll have his spirit to be with us. Um, My mom, she passed away a few years ago, and I think about her all the time. And sometimes I like to think when I think about her, that she's there. I love the verses where it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in your midst also. And I really do believe that. I, I'm sure you've had these experiences where you're talking about the Savior, and all of a sudden, everything changes in the room. And it's like he's there. It's pretty cool. And one of the most significant ways to invite that is to remember him. I choose what I fill my mind with. Yes, And I choose to fill it with Christ. And I remember him. And I love that it's remember him always. We covenant to remember him always, to always remember him, not just on Sundays, not in sacrament meeting, to always remember him. And that's the invitation. President Spencer W. Kimball said that remember might be the most important word in the English language, that we must remember Jesus. And if we do, we invite that spirit to be in our lives. So very significant to throw those prayers in and to, again, see that that pattern in our modern-day sacrament prayers that we, we partake in remembrance and we covenant to remembrance. That means four times in any given sacrament meeting, you will hear remember or remembrance. It's got to be significant. I, I like, and I think it was John, by the way, who once said this. He says, it's got to be Jesus's favorite scripture because it's in every church meeting, except for conference, right? But in every church meeting, we read those verses. It's probably the most repeated scripture in the church are the sacrament prayers. Um, I think it's not by coincidence. I think that's on purpose. And so and, and another thing about this is you don't have to be a scholar. Like you can hear this prayer in your own language and you can think of Jesus. And if you think about this historically, over the course of 2,000 years— Many people weren't literate. In fact, probably most weren't, but you go to these really old churches and in their stained glass windows, they would have depictions of the stories out of the Bible from Jesus's life and the prophet's life. And so for many people, they weren't people of the book in the sense that they could read it, but they could feel it. And so I think, yeah, we should read and study and I love to be a nerd, but really it's about how we treat people and remembering Jesus. It's really that simple. 
And here we find it at the end of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So that leads us to chapter 6, which is a beautiful look at how the church functioned in the days of the Nephites and how it should function today, that we do gather oft to partake of bread and wine in the remembrance of the Lord, and that we need to make sure that we come into the church worthily, that there are standards of baptism, and and, and there's a bar that has to be met, and if you want to join the church, you meet that bar, and that bar has to be—we've got to stay above that bar, and so they would— in verse 7, they were strict to observe that there was no iniquity among them, and there was church discipline if, they, if it needed to be, and there was repentance. And if, they, if you sought for forgiveness, you were granted forgiveness. So all of those things, very similar to our day. But I think the gem here in chapter 6 is verse 4, that once people were baptized, their names were taken, that they might be two things— This is what human beings need. This is why we have a church. This is the function of the church in kind of two words. So whatever you're calling in the church, apply this to you. Ready? We take down the names of people who have been baptized so that we can remember them and nourish them. I can't think of a better description of what your job in your calling is, no matter what your calling is. Your job is to remember and nourish. So if I'm a primary teacher, we've taken the names of the primary kids that are assigned to me. I have the list of their names. And my job is to remember and nourish them. You know what I see there? I see an awesome mom. I just see I see a mom who's like, I'm going to make this awesome meal. And by the way, who remembers your birthday? Yeah. Isn't it mom? It's no wonder that the church is called the bride of Christ. Like she's this beautiful woman. It's motherhood right there. That's a beautiful description. She remembers and she nourishes. I just, it's that concept that we go to church to be nourished and to nourish others. And that's why we go. We go to nourish others. Some people say, well, I don't get much out of church. And I get that, you know, it's legitimate to say I'm not being nourished and we need to work on that. But whenever my children say that I'm not being nourished, I turn it around and say, are you remembering and nourishing others? Is that why you're going to church? You have an opportunity every time we go to church to remember and nourish other people. My wife would say that about the Tuesday night activities. Not every young man wants to go to every one, and I get that. But she would always say, if you go, you're going to make it better. You're going to make it cool to go. And so I think sometimes, especially as teenagers, we're like, I don't want to go to this activity, but I think you're onto something here. In other words, what am I bringing? And who am I nourishing? Yeah. If I focus on... Who can I nourish? Again, we go to church to remember and to nourish. Those are beautiful words. And I know we can focus on ourselves, but those two words demand that we focus on other people. We remember them and we nourish them. There's a, this is a side note, but there's this wonderful family in our ward where her name is Sister Jensen and she makes a sacrament bread and she's famous in our ward. People come back and they're like, I remember this ward because of the sacrament bread. And 
I think about her a lot when, when I take the sacrament because I'm thinking she doesn't have to do this, right? But she just goes and she makes this bread. And in a way, I mean, we don't do it anymore, but in the early Christian church, it was a big meal that we would have. The Thanksgiving feast originally in Israelite religion was at the temple. It was this big fall festival where you would eat and you would remember Jesus that he was going to come and die and you would make these new covenants and you've gathered in the harvest and the pilgrims, when they got here, they wanted to carry this on. And so today that's what Thanksgiving is. And and we've kind of modified this feast, right? And we have the sacrament where we just have bread and, and water and it's very simple, but we're practicing this. And so I think this is a type of coming to our heavenly home. And that Heavenly Father wants us to feel remembered and nourished. I really appreciate you drawing out those two words because, yes, going to church, what am I getting out of it is a question, but I love how you ask, what am I putting into it, right? Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. And see it in terms of how can I help nourish them? How can I? So those of you in your church callings, whatever your church calling is, if you'll focus on the nourishment that the people you're remembering are getting. I remember reading from Spencer W. Kimball the following. He once wrote, I fear that all too often many of our members come to church, sit through a class or meeting, and then they return home, having been largely uninspired. It is especially unfortunate when this happens at a time when they may be entering a period of stress, temptation, or crisis. We all need to be touched and nourished by the Spirit. And effective teaching is one of the most important ways this can happen. We often do vigorous enrollment work to get members to come to church, but then we do not adequately watch over what they receive when they do come. And I think the Lord is pleading with all of us teachers to say, make your teaching a feast that fills them. And I know the Lord will help you. And again, back to our discussion on power, whatever you're called to teach, if you will live righteously and plead with Heavenly Father and do your very best, I am convinced he can take five small loaves and two small fishes and he can fill the multitude. He can even give them more than they can fit in their mouths and they'll have to use baskets to carry the rest home. He can multiply what you say, but your job is to go with as much nourishment as I possibly can. Nourish the saints. Remember them and nourish them. And that's what I just love Moroni 6. I think that whole chapter boils down to those two words that anyone who joins the church, we took your name so that we could remember and nourish. Now, notice the net, how that sentence finishes out. If they are remembered and nourished by the good word of God, it will keep them in the right way. It will keep them continually watchful unto prayer, and they will rely upon the merits of Christ, who is the author and finisher of their faith. They need to be fed when they come to your class or in your home so that they reach out to the Savior. That's really what the prophets do is they keep the doctrine pure. They make sure that we're on the right way, the right path. So it's not going to change your life, but there's some good stuff in early Christianity that we didn't know in Joseph Smith's day. So in the 1870s, they found this Christian document called the Didache, and it's essentially Moroni 4, 5, and 6. 
and we'll link it to the show notes and you can go and you can read it yourself. It doesn't even take that long to read, but essentially it says some of the stuff that Moroni is talking about. Um, it was this early text and it was also called the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. And it's this text that doesn't pop up in the Bible because we, we don't really have the establishment of the church right in the first while. Um, it kind of happens over time, but essentially what this text is, is it's a written text on a manual on like, how do we run church? And so in the very first chapter, it talks about the parable of the two ways. There's the ways of life and there's the ways of death. And that's really what Ether ends with. Ether ends with, there's two paths you can go on, the way of life or death. And it's second Ephi 9, right? The parable of the two ways. And then it talks about baptism and it says, after you're baptized, then you take the sacrament. That's chapter seven. The, the eighth chapter talks about fasting um, and emphasizes that those that eat the sacrament be baptized first. So a lot of this stuff, like I said, is in Moroni chapter six. It also talks about this idea of someone's going around and they're preaching the gospel. They need to be living the gospel. And so early Christians read it and it's their way of systematizing the gospel. How do we, how do we run a church? How do we do the sacrament? And I really like that idea that that was taught and that was in there. When Nephi has the vision of 1 Nephi 13, and he sees the many plain and precious things taken out, and then he drops this line and he says, and many of the covenants did they take away. And I think about as big as the Bible is, I mean, you pick it up, it's a pretty big book. The sacrament prayers and the baptismal covenant, like a foundational central thing, it's not in there. And I think maybe Moroni got to the bottom of this and he was like, you know what? We better put this in there. It's significant that the early Christian church in Europe and Asia and the early Christian church in America are found to be doing the same things after Christ. Yeah, same stuff. Um, and by the way, we're not there yet, but they have the same kind of fights. So one of the fights they have over in, in Asia about the same time is what do we do with babies? How do we conceptualize the concept of salvation and babies and sin? And we'll get into that later when we get to chapter eight of Moroni, but about the same time they're having that. Now, we don't know this for sure, but if you read the title page to the Book of Mormon, there's two chunks. You can almost see two natural divisions, the first ending and the second ending. And Sidney Sperry did some work on this where he essentially says that Moroni finishes the record and in, in Mormon 8, he's like, I'm done. Look in verse 13. It says, Behold, I make an end of speaking concerning this people. I am the son of Mormon, and my father was a descendant of Nephi. So Sidney Sperry talks about this, where he says, that's probably the first ending. And then he puts the plate somewhere. Maybe he puts them in the hill. And then time passes. He thinks about 16 years. And during this course of time, he decides, I'm going to put in the record of Ether. So after verse 13 of Mormon 8... He writes the title page with just that first paragraph. And the first paragraph doesn't talk about the book of Ether. So then later he picks up the text again, and then verse 14, he writes Mormon 8.14, where he says, I'm the same who hitteth up the records. Um, and then he says, for he truly saith that no one shall have them to get gain. The rest of Mormon 8 kind of has a different tone and tenure than the beginning of the chapter. In other words, Mormon 8 kind of has this natural division with Moroni's first ending. And so then Moroni picks up Ether, and look what he says. Ether chapter 1, verse 2. I take mine account from the twenty and four plates which were found by the people of Limhi, which is called the book of Ether. 
And then he gets into the narrative and he says, here's the book of Ether. After he puts that in, the book of Ether, and then after he writes a little bit more, then he writes the second part of the title page. And so if you read the title page and you take a minute and you look at it, you can almost see two natural divisions, the first ending and the second ending. Now, like I said, this isn't going to change your life, but it's good to just kind of see what Moroni is doing, that he's adding to this. And in a way, it's kind of like our story. We just, we don't know when our story's finished. And certainly from Moroni's perspective, he thought he was done, but he wasn't. He's like, you know what? I got to put more in here. Book of Mormon Central's done some really good stuff with chapter two, where Moroni wants to finish what his father did with 3 Nephi 18. In 3 Nephi 18, verse 37, Mormon says this, talking about the disciples getting the authority as we've talked about, the multitude heard not the words which he spake, therefore they did not bear record, but the disciples bear record that he gave them power to give the Holy Ghost, and I will show unto you hereafter that this record is true. And Moroni is going through the record, and he's like, well, he really didn't explain that, so what am I going to do? I'm going to add that in there. And so that's where we get Moroni chapter two. So some good stuff. I think the main takeaway that I get out of this, Bryce, I really like the idea of remembering and nourishing the purpose of why we have church. And then also the idea of there's a difference between power and authority and authority is given, but power is this invitation to participate with God. If you call in his name in mighty prayer. I think that's a really applicable stuff. And if we put those together, that when I receive a church calling, I am authorized to remember and nourish, and it's going to be good because I'm, do, I'm doing it with authority. But if I will then yearn for that connection with God, if I can unlock the power of heaven, then I can nourish with power. And we've all seen the difference between someone who can nourish with authority only and someone who nourishes us with power. And that comes from righteousness. It doesn't come from holding an office in the priesthood. It doesn't come from having keys. Not all key holders have power. And it doesn't necessarily even limited to those who have authority. It's because of God's priesthood, you can access power in that priesthood by your righteous deeds, by your connection with heaven. May we all reach out to heaven. May we understand that the closer we are connected to heaven, the more powerful we will be in our church assignments as we reach out and try and nourish other people because we remember them and we love them. And that's my prayer as we come to the end of this podcast. And we thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.